Hey, this is Aaron Carnes. We started this podcast in 2021 to promote my book, In Defense of Ska. Since then, the podcast has grown into its own thing. I've been working on an expanded second edition. I interviewed new people, edited every chapter, and there's a new final chapter, 30,000 new words. The expanded second edition of In Defense of Ska will be released on October 29th, 2024. Can you do something for me? Pre-order it right now at clashbooks.com under the books tab. The more copies it sells in advance, the more it'll get people to support ska music. Thanks. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to In Defense of Ska. We aim to push back on the mainstream's negative perception of the music. Ska deserves the respect genres like punk, hip-hop, and hardcore find among their listeners. Our host is renowned music journalist and author of the book In Defense of Ska, Aaron Carnes. Today we talk with Fishbone's bassist Norwood Fisher. Fishbone formed in the late 70s when the members were still kids. By the early 80s, they were one of the hottest bands in LA. Then in 1983, they got signed to Columbia Records. In 1985, they released their debut self-titled EP, a landmark American ska record. The group's influences were really diverse, and they never committed to playing just one genre. But in those early days, a lot of their music revolved around ska. They approached the genre in a way totally different than the two-tone musicians before them. It was faster, wilder, and blended with more styles. It completely shifted how U.S. ska bands would play the genre, which is to say, more chaotic. That debut EP sounds like it could have been released in 1995. And now, joining me is my co-host, veteran ska musician Adam Davis of Omnigon and Link80. So for you, Aaron, is Fishbone an important band in ska or the most important band in ska? I'm going to go with the most important band, at least in terms of American ska, You know what came after Two-Tone in terms of the direction that ska would take particularly in the U.S., but globally as well. Yeah. I mean, anytime we've been talking on here to a musician about their relationship to ska, Fishbone always comes up. Yeah, always. And and the thing about Fishbone is that if we had a podcast about 90s alternative rock or funk metal or other genres, they would come up frequently as well because they've been influential in, in a multitude of places. But for me, for my interest, and from my point of view, their role in ska is what's really important. Yeah, they're not just a ska band. They do all sorts of different stuff. Have you heard their new EP that they released last year? I did. Yeah, it leans quite in the ska direction, more than anything they've released in quite a while. So I'm very happy with that. And listener, you can also check out our episode with Angelo Moore that we did back in 2021, episode number 34. The first thing I want to talk about is um, the Fishbone uh, social media content. I feel like the last couple of years have, has been really strong, the stuff that you guys are posting there. And I've learned some stuff about the band from that stuff. So I wanted to, I wanted to run a few interesting tidbits I heard or saw on your uh, social media. Oh, let's go. All right. Uh, so when Gallagher died, uh, you guys, you posted that, uh, that you used to open for Gallagher in the 80s. Absolutely correct. That happened. <laughs> Whoa. What were those shows like? You know what? Gallagher showed Fishbone a lot of love, and it, it actually put us in front of an audience that I know would have missed us. Mm-hmm. 
they they weren't checking for us. Gallagher was like, I want my audience to experience this. So um yeah, it was it was insane for us. We had, you know, we knew who Gallagher was and and his whole like you know, smash it up comedy routine, like, you know. And uh yeah, it was it was we we I don't even remember how many times it would be always be at the Palace in Hollywood, which is now I believe the Avalon. I don't even know if they do live shows there anymore. Uh I, I think they do, but it's just rare. Like they have a you know, some kind of DJ stronghold over there. Right. But but ultimately, yeah, man, it was it was wild and and I I just remember it being like an an audience that was receptive to what we did. There was like there was this one show that we did at he 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 headlined Universal. I mean not Universal. It was the Irvine Meadows, and and it, it, I believe it was Fishbone and the Untouchables, and there was somebody else on there. Like it was like it was a, you know, he reached out to Sky. <laughs> Like if, I don't know if the third band was a ska band or not, but dude, he had Fishbone and the Untouchables at his Irvine Meadow show, like, you know, wow. big old, you know, dance party of music and his comedy. So this was uh this was like mid eighties or early eighties? Yeah, it seems like it was more the mid eighties. Yeah. So he was huge at that point, right? He was massive. He was big and growing. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I just never even, I was just thinking back to being a kid and seeing Gallagher on TV, never would have imagined uh, bands opening for him, let alone good bands. Yeah. I mean, you know, like that was, that became a thing in comedy. Like, and I appreciate it. Like comedy and music, like Eddie Murphy did it with the Bus Boys. He took he brought the Bus Boys under his wing, and and you know they they were part of his comedy uh, performances, and he put their music in his movies. Did you open up for any other comedians in your career? Uh, my mom remembered something. Okay, so like, wait a minute. I'm I can't like this is the embarrassing part because I cannot remember this guy's name right now, and he's like the most famous guy on the planet. No, not really, but he's super famous. Is like, uh, and and it was a comedian, and and I like I'd be seeing him in restaurants in Santa Monica where I live, and like i I feel like I'm bothering people a lot, and so I just they leave people alone sometimes, right like uh, I don't want to bother them. you know uh, maybe I should call my mom and ask <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, like yeah, but he I think he opened for fishbone and then blew all the way up he opened for you, yeah, like I actually now i'm I'm having a uh I, like a lapse, total collapse in my memory banks. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure we've done more than than Gallagher. Yeah. Well, maybe it'll come back to you. Yeah. Uh, so there was another. There was another post. This one totally blew my mind. 
It was a, it was, it was an article. Uh, so William Zabka, the Johnny from Karate Kid, yeah. it was an article that he said that he, he grew up with Angelo and that he used to jam with Fishbone. I think even, it might even been pre-Fishbone. Pre-Fishbone. He lived across the street from Angelo. They, they grew up like neighbors. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, Billy Zabka. I don't really remember him jamming, jamming with us. It's like, that's a long time ago. He probably did because we were, oh, we were welcoming. We were opening. If your motherfucker said he could play, like, go ahead, pick it up and let's see what you can do. Right. Mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, but yeah, I, yeah, like him and Angela hung, dude, you know, and, and, uh, yeah, El Camino High School, Woodland Hill. Hmm. Do you know if they're still tight? I wouldn't say they're tight. No. No. But, okay. but it's it's good memories. Like when I see Billy, that's, you know, fuck yeah. I know. The, you know. So was that a trip when you, uh, Karate Kid came out and he was on the, had this role? I didn't remember who he was. <laughs> 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 like, oh, that's a nice movie. I didn't even see it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> It was old as fuck when I saw it. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, like saw it on HBO or some shit way later. Uh, well, now they now they relaunched, you know, the Cobra Kai, the TV show with him on it. Right. Have you watched that at all? No. We gotta get it. We gotta get a fishbone cameo in that. Come on. I actually don't watch a lot of TV. That's fine. You don't need to. TV's bad for you. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm a, I'm like a news junkie, news information, and you know, sure. I got like it's been a while. Like I used to watch like a lot of, of uh, extreme sports. Like I love, I do mm. a little bit. You know, I broke my wrist skateboarding, but that wasn't because I'm a badass. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, man. Um, yeah, so I miss I miss out on a lot. Uh, Entertainment wise, personally, but mm-hmm. you know, like I, like, and I don't retain movies well either. Like everybody, like, like not everybody, because but but like Chris Dowd, he 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 he's a guy zingers with one liners from movies all the time. He remembers so much. I don't remember a damn thing. <laughs> okay, so another post. This one was more recent. It was um. It's basically saying that a uh, Sid Croft from Sid and Marty Croft is a Fishbone fan. Apparently, I, I I didn't know that. You didn't know that one? Okay, I missed that post. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how I looked. I googled it. I didn't see anything about it. But I remember when the post came up, it was um, said, "Oh, Sid Sid Croft's a big Fishbone fan." And then he commented, "He's like, hell yeah, I am." That makes my big toe shoot up in my boot. Yeah. <laughs> hey, me too. I. Those shows were so insane. I love hearing that he 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 digs fishbone. He even knows that there is a fishbone that exists. Is is major for me, man. Yeah. Or, like I'm like I want I, like that would be a collaboration that that would. Oh hell yeah! You know, yeah, you got to get him to make a video. That would be. That'd be super exciting. That's all, like be on the same level of when we worked with Spike Lee, man. That's like yeah, you know. <laughs> when uh, so. When when we had Margaret Cho in this podcast, and she said that she was a big fan, you had never known about that before. No, I didn't. I didn't know that. And you know what? 
as we talk, I'm going like, I could have been face to face with her, said something crazy in her, you know what I mean? Like try to hit on her best friend or something. And I wouldn't remember, you know, <laughs> I, I got, her. but, but I'm a fan. I'm like, yeah. she's brilliant. And yeah. you know, like she's, she's, and and I I love that that she's actually pushing the envelope, you know, and expanding in the in as as a, a creator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's important that she's there. This wasn't a post, but uh, I, I saw this. This one just came up when I was looking up reading some interviews. Um, Dave Grohl's old band Scream. They opened for Fishbone back in the day. Yeah, man, I was I I was a fan of Scream, so I was excited when that show was coming up. It was in Miami at the Cameo Theater. Um, I remember that day very clearly because because I was again I was excited at the legend of Scream, right? And then uh, I never forget like we did our sound check and you know we jam a lot and go on and on and but we finished and. Dave Grohl, I was I went to go introduce myself to the guys, and Dave Grohl was like, uh, 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 "Do you you think your drummer would uh, let you know strike his kit so I can use the drum riser?" And uh, I already knew that the likelihood was a no answer, but I went and asked Fish, and Fish was like, "Hell no!" (laughs) I had to go back and tell Dave Grohl no. You know, decades and decades later, I was at like you know, Foo Fighters at the Forum backstage. I'm talking to the dudes in Allison Chains, and Dave Grohl walks up. Lemmy was there too, and but me and Dave Grohl had a moment where you know we just talked a little bit, and that that moment flashed like it was. I was embarrassed, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like damn, my brother was like. And hell no. And look at Dave Grohl now. <laughs> <laughs> Scream were awesome. And also, they did play a little bit of ska. Right? Yeah. All right. So the new Fishbone EP came out earlier this year, and uh, which I, I love, by the way. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with it. One thing I noticed is probably the most ska on a release that you've had since maybe even the first EP, right? Yeah, it's ska intensive. What, what was the what was the reason behind uh, all the ska? Well, one, it just I, like you know, Fat Mike producing. He's just looking for the songs, mm-hmm. right? If the song connects to him, he's like, I want to do that, and that I think is you know just what happened ultimately. The, those that that those elements were there in the in the songwriting resonated because you know we did what we do we just write and write we wrote a lot of songs and I know some of them had to suck but you know, <laughs> it was he did got the best the cream of the crop in his mind he pointed to and then we continued to craft them and voila you get. Fishbone's new music. Yeah. I'm I'm really happy with it. And, you know, like right now we're playing four out of the five songs live and Wake Up My Child is the last one. And I'm I'm excited to begin to play that too. 
was I was actually talking to Paul Hampton from the Skeletons, and he was like, just a couple of days ago, and he was like, yeah, that's my favorite song. I'm like, that's what's next. We'd be rocking that shit. It's a great release. Like, I feel like all all the songs on it are awesome. Yeah, way to curate, Fat Mike. <laughs> I remember first hearing about you working with Fat Mike in like 2020, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And it was wasn't it going to be an LP originally? Yeah, yeah. We set out to do ten songs, and and uh, there was some. There was the crazy showed up, right? Like it almost fell all the way apart. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, and and I didn't think it was for any good reason. It was actually for really bad reasons. And uh, you know, I'm glad that it all came back around, and and maybe the timing was just right. And you know, I, I don't know. It it feels like I'm in the right place at the right time today. Although it was painful, the whole band like we came to a complete standstill. As as a band, like we we were getting together, still writing, but like nothing was happening. Part of it was COVID, but it was just you know, like you know, we had five original members, and you know, like to this day, I'm like, you know, it's a bunch of strong-willed aging guys aging guys that have known each other. Like, I, I think I was 12 when I met Chris and Kendall. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> That's a long time. Yeah. yeah I'm, I just turned 58. You know? Like, it was... And, and I was 13 when I met Angelo. Turned 14, you know, when I really started getting to know him. So, you know, family. Right, mm-hmm. like that's the yeah. best way to describe it. It's like any any family, you know, that that has some level of dysfunction, and I, I'm dysfunctional as anybody. Uh, but you know, we were this functional enough to make it to get this EP out. I'm so happy. Yeah, uh, it got, and it was it was awesome to see like. Um... You know, people talking about it, people talking about you guys again, that it may be publications or other things where people hadn't been talking about you for a while. Yeah. And even just, you know, the radio stations that are actually playing it. Like, I'm I'm just like, dude, it's been so long since that we've been on the air somewhere. Like, we were playing in Boston with George Clinton and a good friend came backstage. It's like, are you playing Cubicle tonight? I'm like. I don't think Angelo knows lyrics yet. He's like, well, I hear that shit on the radio every day. I'm like, huh? I didn't know. Yeah, that's what I, I was going to say. I, I heard that Cubicles get, has gotten some radio play. Yeah, and all we have is now came out the box with a little bit of radio play here and there. Mm-hmm. You know? So, you know, this is, this is, you know, it feels incredible, like somewhat of a rebirth. And and I I I just feel really good about it. I I just you know I love Fat Mike. I, he's been he's been a bro since the day I met him, and you know like what we've done to me is is 
is like, the, you know, the band's writing, his instincts, it all worked together to create something amazing. The the song Estranged Fruit got a co-write with him. Was his input on that one a little different? He gave us those lyrics, man. Oh, okay. That's And he wrote that, like, you know, because as we're coming together, you know, it was at the height of the George Floyd protests, right? Yeah. And he had wrote those lyrics two years in advance of that. And he was just like, dude, I got these lyrics. They kind of fit the moment. And we read them and was like, uh, you know, there's a thing called the Cinderella theory. Try it on and see if it fits. That motherfucker fit. <laughs> it's you we wearing it right now. I remember uh, in 2020 uh, during COVID, you guys did a show, like a some kind of show at Fat Mike's house. Yes. Like a, I guess like a live stream with like a few people there. And um, that was the song that I remember watching at that, that really, that really intrigued me about what this Fat Mike record was going to yield. I was like, whoa, this is cool. I want to, I want to hear what they're doing now. Yeah. Yeah. That was really special. And that's, see, and that was like the last, like everything kind of ground to a halt after that performance. Mm-hmm. Um, on a real Fat Mike went to rehab, right? And, you know, in that, in the time that we were in limbo after that, like, you know, the band started doing its own, you know, kind of tripping. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, you know, like the, the egos of I could do it better. Like, why are we stopping? I'm like, dude, Mike is going to rehab. Like, what the fuck? Anyway, uh, Band fuckery. It happens. <laughs> it's, it happens. It happens, especially with bands that have been t- together as long as yours has. Yeah, exactly. And I'm, I'm just glad that we can be here now and celebrate our legacy with our fans, you know, longtime fans, and and create, you know, space for new new people to come aboard and, and fly the flag of the fishbowl soldier. I'm curious about the decision to do the uh, the cover that you did, where you you took the original EP and you put like scotch tape or duct tape. I mean, not scotch tape, put duct tape over the faces. I think that originally that originally like Chris Dowd had a concept, like, and it was called the Black Plague. Hmm. This this is pre COVID. Now that I'm thinking about it, I didn't like it. <laughs> I, I like the concept. He 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 made a T-shirt and he he put crazy masks on the faces of everybody and caught and crossed out the name Fishbone and you know like a punk rock band called like we come out as a punk rock band called the Black Plague, you know, and uh, and I I didn't get it, right? Yeah, and, and uh. So it came time to do the shoot. We were going to do a photo shoot. And and again, in the, uh, uh, you know, we could be obstinate and get in our own way. I think Angelo refused to show up to the photo shoot because he needed to protest something. And uh, management 
threw that one up. I did not like it at all. Mm-hmm. Some of the band members loved it. Some of the band members liked what Chris came up with in the first place. You know? And that one went forward. And, uh, you know, today, like, oh, I was not happy. Today, I'm totally cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a weird cover, but I guess it, it does kind of suggest a rebirth. Like, you know, the first cover, still self-titled EP, Scott-oriented. You know, it does, it does have a sort of a, like, rebirth tone to it. You know what? I, I, I think it was, I saw like Questlove did a, did a post like completely, you know, like giving love to us. And it seems like he stated that like what we did was a sequel to the, to that EP, you know, four decades later or however long it is, you know, Mm -hmm. Which, which, like, like when when I saw that, the way he phrased it, I was like, "Oh shit!" Like, okay, it makes sense. I'm, I gotta, I gotta put my guns down. <laughs> <laughs> Questlove, he's a, he's a pretty big uh, Fishbone fan, dude. So much love from him, man. I, I really appreciate, uh, you know, everything. Like his, his, you know, and those guys are always nice to us. And, mm-hmm. You know, we were very fortunate to meet them when they were a baby band in Philadelphia. Um, Did you play with them? No, not then. We just had some mutual friends that made sure that because they were the they were the shit. They were the band that everybody was like, "No, this is our band." Philly got something special, mm-hmm. and they made, and then some friends. Uh, Big Al Branch and and Liz Orleans made sure that we we met them. That's rad. Yeah. I, every time he's like said anything about Fishbone, like I just feel like he he gets it. Like he gets it. He's got such like beautiful insight into your music. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I'm like, yeah, like I said, like the way he he put the current EP in the context. I'm like, he got it better than me. In Defense of Ska will return in a moment. So later this year, you are um, going on tour with Giza? Yeah, yeah, November. Yeah, the Truth and Swords tour. Yes. That seems like an awesome pairing. It's not one that I would have anticipated. I'm curious if you have history with Giza. Not at all. Really? No, not at all. But we got a history with hip hop. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's what it is. That's why it makes sense to me. Cause we've we've been intertwined with hip hop from our earliest days. You know, it was it's it's kind of incredible even to think like um for those who don't know, well, I'm going to just say, Lior Cohen, who eventually, you know, I think he ran operations at uh, Def Jam Records. And eventually he was the head of YouTube. He ran YouTube. 
That's and he may still. I'm not sure. But uh, Leor Cohen loved Fishbone, and he put Fishbone together with Run DMC. Mm. The first time Run DMC played Hollywood, the only thing they had done in Los Angeles before that was played somewhere in Compton at a place called the Stardust Ballroom in Hollywood. And uh, he put us together with Houdini. Oh, yeah. We opened for Ice-T. And Ice-T, if you're checking, he will say that show inspired him to do body count. There was a particular I don't give a fuck moment. <laughs> he got it. <laughs> Wait, what was the moment? Well, it, okay, so look, like that particular audience did not get fishbone. I don't know if they didn't get us, if they were shocked. They just seemed to stand there and they bewilderment. They gave no response. They didn't clap. They didn't boo. And I didn't under, never had encountered that. I have a motherfucker throw something at you. They don't like you, but that's a response, right? And this, there was like nothing. And at the end of the night, after the last show, I grabbed a microphone stand, twirled it around and threw it up into the ceiling and it stuck. <laughs> I had a base into the ceiling and it stuck there. and and so we've interacted with ice t throughout the years you know before there was a body count you know like we he was we he see ice t had fame in the streets since like i knew of him in the streets since i was at least in the 10th grade if not before and he did it. He did a dance at the Culver City Memorial Auditorium. I was in the eleventh grade. My school. It was related to my school, Hamilton High School, Alexander Hamilton. And and uh, I went to that, and I was like, uh, that was the first time I heard gangster rap, and it was like, oh shit, the, like you know, the drive-by got a soundtrack. This shit ain't going nowhere ever. Like I <laughs> immediately, I was like. Uh, you know, but you know, Ice T used to have have these clubs in L.A. He had a club called Radio. I I went there a few. It was a hip hop club. Went there a few times. Not much. Walt went there way more than I did, I think. And uh, but later on, he had these clubs: Water the Bush and United Nations. And you know, that was it. Was a lot of interaction with the Rhyme Syndicate. And, you know, Bronx style Bob from the Rhyme Syndicate was a part of my my band Trulio Disgracious. Mm-hmm. Bob ran the live room in Ice T's club, so we were the band. You know, and we'd get up there and jam and do whatever we wanted to do, and something like I would be drunk as shit, and <laughs> you know, got got you know extra lubricated thoughts, and I was. I'd just get on the mic and freestyle rhyme and shit. And those times when I'd be on the mic just rhyming, babbling, drunk, 
And I look up and there's EPMD behind me waiting for the mic. There's, you know, like, like, then, you know, MT Light or Queen Latifah or something, you know, like it would, you know, the DOC and, you know, like all these, and I'd be like, oops. (laughs) 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 But, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was incredible. Like, you know. But but yeah, it, so I was talking about Leor Cohen, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Leor Cohen put us together with with uh, uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it was amazing, and you know, and then you know, we did the we did the license to ill tour, right? Yeah, that was groundbreaking for us. It was one of the most amazing moments in the history of fishbone yeah let's talk about that tour i think it was in 87 or 86 86 it started okay and and it went into 87 and and uh i think it went into 80 seems like it did it was it was you know it was the, the beastie boys first headline tour and it was murphy's law fishbone and the beastie boys you know and it created like basically a lifelong bond with Murphy's Law, you know, and the audience was insane. Yeah. So what? What? How big were these rooms? Were they kind of, kind of small rooms because they were just starting Hell out? No, they were big rooms. They were massive. Like how big are we talking? We're talking like three thousand, five thousand seats. Oh yeah, that's a big room, right? Like yeah, it was big, nice, big, hunking rooms. It seemed like that's what it was. I don't think it was much for fifteen hundred seaters, maybe some two thousands, mm-hmm. but three, it seemed like three to five, you know, maybe some seven, seven thousand. I'm not sure; it's a long time ago, but it was big rooms, you know, and it was a lot of love from those audiences, you know, you know, and that's when like the first time, like really hearing Adam Yauk play bass like he got a bass he there was an amp that he bring in the sound check sometimes well, it seemed like it was around the middle of the tour that motherfucker would be sitting up playing bad brain song and killing it i i'd be like wait a minute and and then for the first time i could hear exactly like oh that's what daryl is doing you know <laughs> like <laughs> like it was, it was, it was, it was MCA that 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 actually like got my ears focused on what was really happening in the song. Um, yeah, man, he's amazing. He was an amazing dude too. Like, you know. So, but yeah, and then and you know, we took Schoolie D on tour. We went out with bitches with problems. We brought bitches with problems out with us. That was incredible. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> and we did, we did, yeah. We had a lot of interaction with hip hop. You know, I sat in. It, it was just, you know, this is L.A. So, like, there was uh, John O'Brien was was Fishbone's roadie. He was the bassist before he came to work. He was a bassist in the in America's Hardcore. I believe that's the band he was in. Uh, wait, let me make sure I get that right. Uh, I don't know where to check that either. 
Oh shit. <laughs> I think that's the band. But uh but John O'Brien, um, he came to work for us and he was amazing with us and he began to expand as a musician, as a bassist, and he began to learn how to record. And a friend, a mutual friend was, was worked at Island Records. Her name is Kim Bowie. She was like, I need a, I need a producer for this band, uh, the Samoans, the, they call it Booyah Tribe. And I was like, oh, maybe you should check out John O'Brien. He's making amazing recordings on this four track. He might be good. And, and she checked it, checked him out. And John O'Brien got the gig. So John O'Brien and, and, uh, Dave Kushner, who is, uh, uh, you, you know, probably most known from Velvet Revolver. Okay. Yeah. But, he he was in Wasted Youth and played with Danzig and you know like but but he played in Trulio Disgracious as well. Both of them did, and so I'd be couch surfing like a motherfucker all, all over L.A. You know, and they was they had my favorite couch, so you know I'm doing what I do couch surfing like you know twelve packs of beer upon awakening. And, and, uh, you know, we'd all wake up and who's going to get the 12 pack and, you know, and, uh, but, and then John got that gig and then, so I'm passed out on the couch, wake up to, you know, these big hunking Samoans coming in the house. But I sat up and watched them do the pre-production for that, for the new Funky Nation Booyah Tribe album. And it was actually, actually, yeah, it was fucking fun, man. This just popped in my head. Um, didn't uh, Kevin Lyman book you guys real early in his career, and and I think in your career too? Hell yeah, we was all little kids. So, <laughs> how did that come about? Um, well, we had not known Kevin prior to him reaching out to book us in like Claremont, you know. Uh, uh, somebody just mentioned some of this. Little towns, little college, east, 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 off the ten shows. Uh, Kevin put us together with Chardon Square, and uh, like we did several things: Fishbone and Chardon Square. And if some of y'all never heard of Chardon Square, it, like I think of them as more of a mod band. I'm sure they did some sky. But mm -hmm. uh, their manager was was uh, 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 Paul Tillette, Golden Voice. Oh yeah, okay. The, the the surviving originator of Coachella. So all three of them, Fishbone, Kevin Lyman, Paul Tillette, we was all like you know doing the damn thing. You know, and uh, and Kevin would book the Untouchables, and Kevin booked like one of my favorite things ever was Fishbone Trouble Funk and the Untouchables. Did did several like three shows in California, amazing. He told us that uh, that you guys would crash at his house too. Hell yeah, 
Yeah, it was at his wedding, and you know, like, you know, that's that's real love, real real family vibes, man. Yeah. All right, so uh, Beastie Boys. I, I read this spin article on Beastie Boys, and this quote jumped out at me here. It says that the Beasties would sometimes come up and open for themselves as a group called Trip Hammer. They would wear these wigs and jam on Black Sabbath type stuff. It was very Spinal Tapish. At one point, they got this big inflatable dick in a box. The phallus was 25 feet tall and was erected by a large tank of gas. Uh, and then a dick would pop up. But one night, Fishbone, so this is during your tour, Fishbone went out and got a bunch of live crabs and somehow adhered them to the phallus without anyone's knowledge. The guys turn the valve up and pops the dick with these huge crabs wiggling all over them. <laughs> this is anything you remember? <laughs> Hell yeah! Because <laughs> we were like, it was the last, was the last show of the tour, and we was expecting the Beastie Boys to do some big, like, <laughs> at end of tour prank on us. So we was like, oh, we'll get them good because we didn't just get crabs; we got inflate these big, gigantic, inflatable blue balls too. <laughs> so. <laughs> so the dick went up, the blue balls, the bl- big blue balls, like, filled up with air and, and yeah, and the crabs. And they, I would never forget how they laughed at that. We'll be right back after this. I want to talk a little bit about bass, bass playing. Yeah, man. You were in on bass at a real young age, right? Yeah, absolutely, man. I, I I just turned fifty-eight, right? And and this Christmas will be the fiftieth year that I have had a bass. So you've been going since you were eight years old, then? Yeah. Wow. So you saw um, you saw the Ohio players in Graham Central Station at Shrine Auditorium, and that's when you knew that night you knew that you wanted to be a bassist, right? Yeah, yeah, and this is actually like I had a guitar, right? I got asked for a guitar for Christmas and got got it at six years old, but I I didn't really have the chord thing down, so I played bass lines anyway. I didn't didn't think much of what I was doing. Did that didn't connect me to bass necessarily, but yeah, I had the the notion at that show. That that I am meant to play bass as I was blinded by this light that came from the stage. Uh-huh. And uh but I didn't ask for a bass for Christmas. I asked for a weight set. <laughs> Eight years old, and I was about to get he manned up. <laughs> <laughs> And actually, my cousin Bud came over Christmas Day, and he saw them weights, and he looked at them weights, and he looked at me. He said, boy, you ain't going to lift them weights. Oh, yeah, I am. Can I make you a deal? I trade. You give me them weights, I'll give you my bass. And I'll throw in my amp, my speaker, and my rock record collection. Right. And, uh, you know, just a few years ago, like, like really like four or five years ago, maybe 
it's hard to get the COVID break to keep sure time, yeah. but it could have been six years ago. But we have Thanksgiving at his at his house. He turned to me and he was like, "Yeah, it looked like you took that bass and you made something out of it." I was, like, <laughs> I was like, "Oh yeah." I was like, "Thanks for giving me my life, man." <laughs> <laughs> so, what was this bass like? What brand was it, and what was this head? It was a Fender. Yeah, Fender bass. Yeah. And then, what type of amp was it? It was a. It was a PV amp. A, a Mark four hundred. It was a four hundred watt mm-hmm. amp with a two fifteen speaker cabinet. Oh, okay. So that's a pretty. Pretty good rig, right? It at was, the gate. yeah, it was man sized, and and part of that, part of the deal was we lived in an apartment, and he was like, "You got to carry that amp and speaker up the stairs by yourself," Oof. and I did. Yeah. <laughs> what were some of the records that were in that collection he gave you? Um, the first Graham Central Station album. Uh. There was several Jimi Hendrix albums. It was it was the Cry of Love, probably the most impactful. It was the the uh, first posthumous album release, mm-hmm. uh, Jimi Hendrix. But there was Band of Gypsies, uh, uh, Electric Ladyland, and Axis Bold is Love, and also. Woodstock 2, which was like, there's a Woodstock album, and Woodstock 2 was stuff that didn't make it on there. And so, <laughs> uh, you know, so there was Jimi Hendrix performance and and Mountain. I listened to a lot. The Sly and the Family Stone, I believe. Um, and, and like, I used to tune to Jimi Hendrix tuning up in between songs. He's tuned in in between every song. And and so I'd listen to that and try to tune to what Jimi Hendrix was doing. And, uh, but it was some Jefferson Airplane, uh, Chicago Transit Authority, and what it was another Chicago album. Like, would, does anybody really know what time it is? Wait, or, uh, wait, is that, uh, Maybe that's on that album. Maybe there's another song I'm thinking of. Whatever that second, well, I listen to all the Chicago Transit Authority, but that second one was only one song. Oh, 25 or 64, maybe. Mm-hmm. I, I'm having a hard time with, with that. I've been list, still listening to uh, Chicago Transit Authority. I, I actually want to cover it in its entirety in some capacity uh, for the fun of it. Mm. But Funkadelic, the first Funkadelic album, and America Eats Is Young, Slime the Family Stone Stand. Uh, and there's a bunch of other ones, too. But, you know, but my, the same cousin, like a few years later, me and my brother, a couple years later, I think I was had to be 10, we'd go visit him in the summers. He he went to college in Turlock, California, not far from Stockton. I knew nothing of Stockton, but I didn't really figure that out till I was touring. Uh, but we he 
stopped listening to rock and his whole record collection was jazz. Me and my brother feasted on his record collection. And that's where we got turned on to jazz fusion. Mm-hmm. And jazz period. I'm fucking 10 years old and digging into like all kinds of jazz. We'd listen to jazz radio and and at his house and just hear all kind of straight ahead, big band, whatever. It was so, you know, but really it was about Return to Forever and uh, Stanley Clark, Lenny White and Astral Pirates, um, John Luke Ponte, uh, you know, but but we we developed this appreciation for jazz, the sophistication, and it set our goals as musicians. Yeah, I've talked to Chris before, and he's mentioned Return of Forever in particular as like a pretty critical influence on Fishbone in the early days, or you know, starting from the early days and going forward. Yeah, yeah, we all knew we all knew of them and could have sit down and appreciate them together. Yeah, it was. It it absolutely was. And that might have primed the pump for, you know, I think I was in the ninth grade and I'm in uh one of my shop classes and this kid is like like talking about Rush. I knew nothing of Rush. And and he was like, Look, and I talk about Funkadelic. And he's like, he brought one day, he brought a, a Rush album to school, and I brought a Funkadelic album to school. And we traded. He gave me permanent waves. And all of that, all of that uh, jazz fusion primed a pump for my love of Rush and prog rock, permanent waves. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, all of that, you know, is fuels all of us, all of Fishbone. You know, well, that, you know, really, me, it's all of us, but me, Chris, Kendall, and Fish, for sure. So I want to talk about some of your bass techniques. Particularly, I feel like you have a very unique, interesting approach to slapping. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit? I was, I was watching this video of you, and... And I'm sure you slap different ways, but this one particular way you were talking about, it's almost like you were using your thumb more as a pick rather than as like full on slapping. Yep. I didn't invent that, but, uh, but a a guy named Jeffrey Connor, uh, showed it to me. He, he showed me several techniques that be, and it's, the thing is like just, my my application and the way that I approach it. One, like most of the guys that use some of them techniques, they play the bass really like up towards their chin, you know? Yeah. So it gives, it gives as you actually get better access. But like when I started playing bass, my mother got me this bass book. It's a book on, you know, how to play and, the first page is like, make sure the bass is comfortable. My smart aleck ass is like, well, my, I'm most comfortable when my arms is relaxed and down to my side. So I took the strap and put it as long as it could get, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and that just became what I did. So all of my techniques 
are like, you know, it's a that's a part of why I have my own style because my approach, one, you know, like most people play like, you know, from either like right on their abs or above. Mm-hmm. You know, on sitting high on the chest up to under right under the neck or something, their neck. And, you know, I'm like, you know, I got my base is, is down covering my crotch. You know? So 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 that is that's a part of it. And and but yeah, like so so it's called double thumbing. And it took me a long time to realize, like, Larry Graham, actually, he that's what he was doing anyway. Like, he's a Jimi Hendrix of bass in my mind. Like, you know, dudes like Stanley Clark is, Stanley is fucking fancy as fuck, and he's amazing, and he's, a, like, bass guy. Victor Wooten, you know, like, it's a gang of motherfuckers, but those are, those are iconic, right? And... You know, Marcus Miller, got to give it up, right? And he he's a double-thumbing king. But I, Larry Graham was doing that shit. So, he like, I look, I'm like, that, it took me in the last 10 years to kind of figure that out. But, yeah, like, I he so, so Jeffrey kind of showed me that thing, and it took me a long time to pull it together. And, uh, like, I had to approach it like, my thumb as a pick, you know. So, you know, I could I could play some punk rock like that, and, mm-hmm. and and I could make it funky, like you know. I think, you know, maybe it's not a lot of people out there doing punk rock with double thumbing technique. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, that lends it to, to the application, right? Um. You know, Jeffrey also gave me the, the, uh, uh, what I was, you know, call it the craw based on the Kentucky Fried movie, right? And, uh, 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 but, but, you know, the claw, right? So, so it was, it was, uh, you know, so you down with your thumb, pluck with your first finger, pluck with your middle finger, a triplet. And, uh, you know, and so there's a way that I approach that that's different. And that's what I use if anybody really wants to hear it, like the end of a song called The Warmth of Your Breath. And why that is like so breakneck speed going there from my end is I'm using that technique. Hmm. The other song, like there's a little point in the solo and boning in the boneyard where I do that. There's a, like another one, I call it the hang loose where I'm just, I use my pinky. I'm slapping the bass with my thumb and my pinky and my hand is just going back and forth. Like, you know, like if you do the hang loose thing and you shake your hand from side to side, yeah, like it's ultimately that's, that's, you know, I don't hold my hand like that exactly, but it's that technique. And, uh, you know, so I get some really different kind of things going there, too. And, and uh, but it was the fan is the one 
it, I developed a few other things, but the fan is the other one that I like. I talk about a bunch. Is it, and it came from watching these ladies play uh, this instrument that I couldn't even tell you the name right now. I had to look it up a few times in my life, but I always forget. But it's a, it's a native to Japan instrument, I believe. And it's, I think it had three strings. It was three women. The promoter, Masahiro Hidaka, he, he, uh, he's the Fuji Fest, right? Like he's, he's, but, but a smash corporation and, and in Japan. And he would take us to dinner after every show, man. Feet, we'd feast massively. And there's one they had this entertainment where these women, sat cross-legged with this triangular-shaped body instrument with a long neck with three strings on it. And they they look so calm and tame as, as humans. But when they attacked this instrument, it was like, it was with such reckless, it looked like reckless abandon. But it was so much accuracy and intense and like precision with intensity, but it looked out of control and punk as fuck. (laughs) And I just sat there going, I got to figure out how to employ whatever they're doing. They're using a pick and I don't even use a pick. I, I play a little guitar. I don't use a pick. Uh, and so I, f- I figured it out, you know, and that's it's those women, whoever they were, I have to thank for that technique. Is that instrument a shamisen? Yes, I believe that is correct. One of my bass students looked it up last, and I believe that's what he found. <laughs> <laughs> so the Fishbone song, uh, When Problems Arise, I feel like I really like not just the bass line that you have in there, but also the kind of how it sits within the song, what it adds to the song without taking away. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's one of my f- favorite bass lines. That, that, mm-hmm. you know, and that came about like, because Kendall wrote that song to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. And whatever he wanted to do with it, me and Fish was like, that sucks. we did not want to play whatever he had in mind so we went to the work of of uh just trying to figure out how to make it feel better to us and uh and really there's a song on funkadelic's america eats his young album the song is called Miss Lucifer's Love. And that is the inspiration for the rhythmic pulse of that song. Hmm. That did, was it, wasn't there a similar story to um, the intro for Party at Ground Zero? No, like I, I wrote that. But Party at Ground Zero, as you know it, the, the, the upbeat, you know, rock of sky thing is the same thing. Kendall had a bass line and a rhythm arrangement that I was like, I don't want to play that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> and and me and Fish went to work to 
figure out what else could be done, what else was possible. And, <laughs> and hence, you know, teamwork makes the dream work. Hey! Yeah. <laughs> in Defense of Ska will return in a moment. So pre-Fishbone, um, the band would uh, rehearse in your bedroom? Yeah. The aquarium? Was that what it was called? Yeah, 2010 Cheriton, block west of La Cienega, between Cadillac and Guthrie. How was, um, was were the, were the neighbors, neighbors okay with you just blasting away in your room? Well, you know, we got some complaints. The really cool thing is the manager of the building, his name was Sam Burns, lived right above us. And he put up with it. Ah. There's a neighbor lived right next door. Her name was Miss Johnson. She put up with it. Right? <laughs> they they got abused. <laughs> <laughs> but Miss Johnson did complain a bunch. But she never made us stop. Sam Burns was the first person to tell us, I think y'all got a groove. Hmm. And it, the song we were doing was Skanking to the Beat. Nice. It's got good taste. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I think about it, because we, we were just, you know, doing what we do, you know, I just I think everybody in the building was black, man, and Sky was not, you know, especially how we was approaching it. Like, that shit wasn't part of what they was on, you know? And, <laughs> yeah. and, and they dealt with what we was doing, honing our craft, you know? Every single one of those people, you know? So I got to look back and be like, my mother, our neighbors, were incredible support system. I read this interview once where you said that um, in those early days, you guys were really into reggae and other music and that you were speeding up reggae, thinking that you were inventing a new sound. And then you heard two-tone ska and realized that this thing you were doing already existed. Yeah, yeah, exactly, man. Um. You know, we have been playing with, with reggae rhythms. You know, there's some Belizean dudes in the neighborhood that just one dude had, I wish I could remember his name. He had a van and he'd be bumping reggae in his van. And, you know, there was, and reggae was being played on black radio in LA as well. Like K Day, KGFJ, mainly K Day, I think I remember though. KGFJ, I'm sure, did it too. Like, at some point, 78, Bob Marley would come on like at night. So I wake up in the night to take a piss and there'd be this sound that I was not familiar with on the radio. There was guys that, that used to just come over and beat on stuff. Like we, we were open like that. A guy named Kevin Allen and Tylon Barger, they would come over and, and you know, Kevin was a bassist too. We'd play with two basses. And, and uh, we'd play with, with reggae rhythms, but but at that at the point to where like the guys that would become original Fishbone were together, that was like by that time KJLH, which is is a record 
station that Stevie Wonder owned. He made it still own it in Los Angeles. And Stevie Wonder loves Steel Pulse, and they started playing Steel Pulse. Mm. So, so on the radio in L.A., like Late Night Bob Marley, and then the next thing you heard was Third World, now that we found love. And then the next thing was Steel Pulse, and KGLH was pumping it. True Democracy was was actually everywhere. And then the next thing that we really fell upon, discovered, or whatever, was Black Uhuru. Hmm. And uh, I could honestly say, as a you know, rhythm section wise, Sly and Robbie became what you know we was looking to. They they were like to me equal to Funkadelic's rhythm section at the time, which was Dennis Chambers and Rodney Skeet Curtis. Uh, was who he was looking to the most, me and Fish, right? But so, so yeah, and 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 anyway. But before we got to that point, it was it was yeah, we were playing with reggae rhythm, speeding it up like the with punk rock energy, and I thought we invented something. <laughs> it was me. I was like, we invented something. That's what we gonna call it. Walt looked at me and said, that's guy, fool. And I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> so he already knew about it. Yeah, he already knew. And because he had an aunt named Frankie. Frankie, uh, Frankie might still be with us, had. But uh, I ain't seen her in decades. But Frankie had, she was a limo driver. And she had a passenger that liked guy. And she turned Walt on to Scott. Hmm. And hence, Scott, when, like, it was within two days, three days at the most, Walt came back to my place, pop dropped two cassettes on the, on the table. That's Scott. It was the selector and the English beat. Shut my punk ass up. <laughs> Uh, but it, that that set us on the direction that we would, you know. And the next the next thing that really was like, really blew our minds was dance craze. Yeah, right. We maybe the specials on Saturday Night Live came before dance craze, but some, you know, like somewhere in there, dance craze, and and we got to see. Dance Craze is a double feature with uh, the decline of Western civilization at the Fox Theater in Venice, uh -huh. where we also saw uh, in that same period of time a double feature of rockers and the harder they come. Oh, awesome. You know, so we was getting our education on, right? Like, Yeah. The first EP... You know, Party of Ground Zero and these other songs, you weren't really playing ska the way the two tone bands were. You were, you were creating a new sound, and it, and it was really, I mean, honestly, it's been the most important and influential version of ska in the development of U.S. ska. This Fishbone, mm -hmm. the blueprint of of what bands would play a decade later, and also you played it better. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> you know, 
like for us, we was just doing what came naturally, right? Like if we didn't, you know, like we were fans of the Untouchables. We loved all the English ska bands. You know, by the time, like, you know, Joey Altruda, right? Yeah, Jump With Joey, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Joey was in a band called Tupelo Chain Sex. And he was Tupelo Joe. We did a bunch of shows with them. It in and, and, and Tupelo Chain Sex was was uh, Sugar Cane, violinist Sugar Cane Harris and Don Cherry, right? And, uh, you know, if people don't know Don Cherry's music, that's Nina Cherry and Eagle Eye Cherry's dad, right? Wow, uh, yeah. So, uh, but you should become related with Don Cherry's music. So anyway, they were in Tupelo Chain Sex. And uh, I didn't know who they were at the time. But we loved Tupelo Chain Sex. Limey Dave was the vocalist. Uh, Willie McNeil was the drummer, you know. Um, they were an amazing band, and they ran with with uh, 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 Skate Master Tate, right? And it was Gaz Mayo, John Mayo's son. Not Gaz, not Gaz. Y'all know Gaz's Rock and Blues, the Trojans, right? Yeah. Gaz's older brother, Jason, managed Tupelo Chain Set. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. He was like this English dude with, with the baddest Corvette, like a 54 Corvette, I believe. Anyway, Ga- Jason was Jason, uh, uh, Skate Master Tate. It might have been Willie McNeil or Tupelo Joe. Like they turned Fishbone on to Sky from Jamaica. We was face all facing. To England, it's the most amazing thing, and they were the ones that really got us related with the Jamaican Scott Kendall. I think was the only person in the band that even he knew the song "The Israelites," but I don't think he knew of it as a Scott song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. It was just this cool song that happened to come across some. How, somehow in his listening. Yeah, that song was like uh, a modest hit in the 60s. It's one of those few songs that kind of crossed over. Yeah, so they gave us a full education. Now, all of this is a part of what created, you know, it's it's all of those influences Yeah, that that actually, you know, are, are, are a part of what became that, that thing that that our our what made Fishbone Sky, you know, different, and we didn't want to sound like anybody else. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good thing to that's a good trait to have as a band. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like we did we did not want to sound like any of our favorite musics, you know, like. Like, I didn't think our funk sounded like Funkadelic. It's like we did our own. We just, it, to me, it sounded very different. It was, at, uh, no doubt, influenced. And the sky influenced by everything I just talked about. I, our perception was that it's, it's your duty to to create your own sound because you know, nobody 
sound like, you know, our favorite bands, none of them sounded alike. Mm-hmm. You look at English ska music scene, like the bands didn't sound alike. Everybody had a completely different identity. Yeah, I mean, that's what's cool about it. And the Untouchables don't sound like any of them. They they had their own way of approaching it. You could, you could draw a line to their influences, maybe in a way, but you know, like that's that's just how what it looked like. Like we knew of bands that just sounded like carbon copies of the bands that we liked the most, and they were like, okay, that's cool, but you know what I mean? Like, don't. There's not a band yet that sounds anything like Sly and the Family Stone. So, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. ain't nobody, you know, and and nobody can do do really, you know, like, like the Sex Pistols, right? Like, or the Clash, really. There's bands that, that draw from it heavily and they give you that vibe. But it's only the chemical combination of the, those band members that that really give you a hundred percent of it. So I'm looking to the OG. Mm-hmm. Always. I want to move forward to uh, Lollapalooza '93. Yeah. So I was watching this one video. It was a short video with you and Angelo, and. Uh, you guys were talking about how inc- insane the pits were. Yeah. Uh, I think Toronto was the most insane, if I, if I remember. Yes, absolutely. And so the other thing, too, is that uh, Angelo was constantly uh, encouraging it, right? Yep. And you guys were telling him to not do that. <laughs> oh, we was like, please don't do that. Like, it, 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 it looked like it could not be good. <laughs> from where we were standing, it looked evil. <laughs> like you standing on stage and fifteen hundred people at once start moving in a circle. You know, by Toronto, like I'd imagine there was some of them pits like three thousand people just churning and it looked slow. It looked like 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 it could not be good. Like this, this, and he wouldn't stop. Damn, he wouldn't stop, man. I'm like, and after the Toronto show, our tour manager, a guy named Wooly Roach, he grabbed me and Angelo, and he took us to the infirmary, and the carnage was insane. It was compound fractures and broken bones everywhere, man. And and he was like, this is what is happening. Angelo still didn't stop. Oh, man. <laughs> he, couldn't, he couldn't stop? <laughs> no. It, it was like, I don't remember exactly how many years later. It seemed like, you know, it was 93. It had to be late 90s. Finally, just one day, this motherfucker said, yeah, I had a God complex. <laughs> you motherfucker, my stomach would turn. It was, And you know what? It's, a, it's actually like, like seeing Black Flag gave me the same feeling. You know, just like something's wrong. <laughs> I love Black Flag. But 
there was something happening when they would play to make my stomach just going. One day I, I was saw Black Flag at the Hollywood Palladium, and I'm standing at the very back of the room with Flea, and he distinguished that. Just, just like a feeling of unease. Yeah, like something is wrong. <laughs> it was like something bad is happening. <laughs> But, you know, that's good. That's rock and roll, except when people actually get hurt. Sure. The Lollapalooza was a, was a height for the band, but at the same time, you, weren't you having to go back to L.A. to, to the court regarding the... I, wasn't, I was going to uh, court in Nevada. Oh, yeah. I'm, so, I'm sorry. That's what I meant. Yeah, so you were having to deal with that case, like, in the middle of Lollapalooza, right? Oh my God, when I think about what I was going through back then, yeah. And you know, it was it was it was a uh court case with Kendall and kidnapping charges, and in the middle of that, I mean, I had a fucking uh uh child custody case. Oh really? Yeah. That's the one like I sometimes forget like that. Happen, you know, and I uh, I survived. <laughs> <laughs> I survived. I I got a full acquittal from the from the kidnapping case, and I lost miserably in the custody case. But you know, uh, I made most of the shows. I I, I think I missed three. Because of flights and uh, Foley, yeah, Foley, he he was playing with Arrested Development at the time. So as people you don't know, Foley played he he played lead bass, piccolo bass with Miles Davis, and uh, and and the next thing I know about is that he was playing with Arrested Development on Lollapalooza. And eventually, he he played drums with George Clinton for a good stretch. He's an amazing musician. I just reconnected with him on tour in 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 uh, Cleveland with George Clinton. He just he wasn't on tour. He came out. Um, but yeah, Foley sat in, filled the gap while when I was my flight was delayed or whatever the deal was. He didn't he fill in for Fish on drums once on that tour. Well, he would, I think Fish just let him play. But yeah, something like that. Uh, yeah. But that was like, you know, that, that was an incredible space. Yeah, Foley sat down and played drums. But so did uh, every now and again, Fish would get up and I'd turn around and there's Tim Alexander playing or Danny Carey, you know. The, um, with the kidnapping case, I don't remember if this was talked about in the documentary, but I read this one article that said that the judge, said that he would have just outright dismissed the case, but because it was so strange, he wanted to see it through. That happened. (laughs) We would have chalked it up to something domestic Mm -hmm. and thrown it out. Because really, nobody got hurt. And it was, you know, there's no danger beyond that. And that doesn't, you know. So, yeah. And the fact that he said that, he said, uh, like, 
you know, motherfuckers say the quiet part out loud. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. really? The story's bizarre, and your entertainment is going to hang my life up. My That's brother needed idea. help. That's why that happened. Yeah. You know? And that's why we were acquitted, because it was obvious to the jury that my brother needed help, Kendall, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's what they said. There was a guy on the jury after after we were acquitted. He was in a wheelchair, I believe. And he came, he rolled up, and he's like, he's like you know, I'm a demonologist. He's like, I came here to put you guys in prison. But after I saw Kendall on the stand, I knew that you guys were only trying to help your friend. I mean, just even just watching any of that, I mean, it seems pretty obvious to me that you guys were coming from a place of love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I still don't know what the fuck it means to be a demonologist. I should look that up. It's probably <laughs> something on YouTube. You know what I mean? Like, what the fuck are you doing, man? Like, like you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, that's a wild one to me he said it though in 2020 uh, you guys did a all original lineup re, a reunion with Kendall yeah uh, for uh, it was at the museum of pop culture and you covered them bones Allison chains yes what was what was that experience like playing with Kendall again well, you know what, Kendall, it was it was a full circle moment, man. It's like if I was going to do a tribute to Allison Chains, Kendall would Kendall could be there, he'd have to be there. Because Kendall was the person that grabbed me by the ear and drug me to go see Allison Chains the first time I ever saw them in a room. It wasn't very many people there. It was I could I I usually say it's probably about thirty people. It could have been a little more, but it wasn't much more. And every time they came to LA, Kendall would be like, Let's go see Alice in Chains and we would go together to see Alice in Chains. And we watched their audience grow in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. You know, and so the the love and friendship with that band begins with Kendall. I remember him. He got he got he got the advanced copy of their rec- their first record, and he's like, "This is the future." So fuck yeah! I'm like, no. We talked. The band talked about it. Let's invite Kendall, and he was up for it. It was appropriate, mm-hmm. you know. And always in the back of my head, I'm like, dude, I, I, you know, me, Kendall, and Fish, really, I. I, there's not another experience like it, mm-hmm. right? And so, of course, I wished that we could do a lot more. Just it wasn't in the cards at the time, you know. Mm-hmm. And even even today, I'm like, you know, if I if I thought that, you know, it would work, I'd I'd I'd, I'd welcome Kendall. I, there's a you know, I I don't think it would now. I still talk to him. I love the brother forever you know but you know when it comes down to this music thing like you know he's the foundation of it mm-hmm. like i am you know mm-hmm. and, and and in fact over the years 
you know, like as I'm playing on stage and I'm looking at the set list and the bulk of the material the, is Kendall's compositions. You know? yeah. <laughs> I mean, we all have a part with crafting it on some level, but honestly, dude, I'm like, I'm like to this day, like I'm like, I have a life because of the combination of all the originals and that will always be important to me. Diminish none. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really cool to watch that footage to see you guys all on stage again. And um, I actually really loved uh, your version of them bones. You didn't you didn't do it exactly the same way. You, you made it sound like fishbone. Yeah, I do feel like that's an underrated uh, aspect of fishbone. You guys are good at covers. You you uh, you make them your own. Yeah, yeah, that's that is. Uh... You know, like, like Freddie's Dead erupted in a sound in sound check. Yeah, I I didn't listen to the song to learn that. That's why the chorus isn't, you know, the uh, the the change isn't exactly what the bass. I never listened to it. I like I just played what I thought it was and kept doing that. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't until like we was doing uh uh. I'm a fly guy with Curtis Mayfield in the studio, Fishbone in the studio with Curtis Mayfield for I'm going to get you sucker soundtrack. Right. And Curtis Mayfield was like, yeah, that's an interesting uh, arrangement you got in my song. And then (laughs) all of a sudden hit me like, oh shit, I never listened to it. I finally, I finally went and was like, "Oh shit, the baseline is doing something really else." <laughs> but again, that's one of them things where, like, you know, like we think that's the way it should be. You don't like no need to carbon copy something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did the filmmakers put that recording session together? Oh hell yeah! That was and that was a we gonna jump at this one, Kenan Ivory Williams. Yes, thank you, bro. <laughs> what what's more epic like you know like in my life to to you know and to get to do a song with curtis mayfield right for that movie in particular it's like it's you know other than to be the band that rolled with george clinton on his farewell tour you know yeah right it's it's a fucking good life Thank you for listening to In Defense of Ska. To support the show, sign up for our Patreon. Intro and outro music by Slow Gherkin from the EP Lives. Additional music by Dan P. and the Bricks. Please rate and review the podcast and tell a friend. Follow at In Defense of Ska on social media. The book In Defense of Ska by Aaron Carnes is available from Clash Books. Order it online. Chris Reeves of SPI is our editor. This is your co-host, Adam Davis of Omnigon, leading you by saying ska now more than ever. What are you doing? Are you just making bass slapping sounds? I just wish I was a bass player sometimes, right? <laughs> so you love having drummers on. How do bass players rank in your, uh, in your guests' uh, priority list? They're all right. I like them.
Especially <laughs> if, they're, if they're Norwood from Fishbone. Yeah. Yeah. I'll take Norwood from Fishbone any day of the week. That was a fun episode. Yeah. And there was more episode. What? How? We talked about their supernova experience behind the curtain. That's a that's a juicy one. Yeah. We sure did. If you were at Supernova or if you were in the audience or in one of the bands, you want to know what was happening? Come sign up for the Patreon. Hear it from Norwood. Find out what happened. It's only $5, you know. Or more. You can sign up for more, right? You can sign up for more, yeah. Every dollar goes towards making this podcast a better podcast. Yes. So, chop, chop. Get to it. Help (laughs) us out. Yeah, what do we got next week? What do we got next week? Daniel Rachel, right? Yeah, yeah. Author of? Too Much Too Young, which is the uh, official two-tone oral history. This is a good one. This is this is the one where you're going to want to sit down, grab a pen and paper, grab an apple for the teacher, and just be educated. 